friends, and welcome to Conversations with Consequences. We are the ladies of the Catholic Association, bringing you witty and charming in-depth conversation on the topics that matter to you with the leading thinkers and movers of our time. Conversations with Consequences is part of the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. Our radio show is always a podcast, and you can listen by going to thecatholicassociation.org slash podcasts, or you can just go directly to wherever you listen to your podcasts. I'm your hostess, Dr. Gracie Christie, and today we have an all-Christmas show for you, celebrating, as we do, the Nativity of our Lord this very weekend. We round out the beautiful Advent season with our dear chaplain, Father Roger Landry. He wrote a beautiful piece recently called A Particularly Eucharistic Advent. He's going to draw some connections and draw some lines between how we experience Advent and Christmas and how we experience the Mass and the constant uh, and renewing presence of our Lord. But first, we travel to modern-day Bethlehem in our hearts and minds today with our friend Calm Flynn, who traveled there recently, visiting all the holy sites and also the Holy Family Hospital of Bethlehem. It is a very important center, uh, a maternity center for women who uh, live in the West Bank and in that whole region where they can deliver their babies safely, even if they're born early. They are welcoming their 100,000th birth this this Christmas. Let's hear all about it from Colm Flynn. Welcome to the show, Colm. Hey, Gracie. It is fantastic to be back with you once again. What a privilege. What a joy. Oh, well, especially since you and I got to spend time in the Holy Land and and we became closer friends. When we were there, we were together in Bethlehem and you talked about coming back to Bethlehem after our pilgrimage there to do a show on Bethlehem and you focused on the Holy Family Hospital. So I wanted to hear something beautiful about Bethlehem and I wanted our listeners to hear this beautiful story Christmas week or last week of Advent leading into Christmas because uh, we all need hopeful and beautiful things for this season. So tell us about the Holy Family Hospital in Bethlehem. To answer your question on a serious note, when you say tell us something beautiful about Bethlehem, I mean, where do you begin? There are so many things you could say about beautiful Bethlehem. It was my second time there, and I, I think it's good to go back a few times because if you go to the Holy Land just once, it is so overwhelming trying to take in everything and the realization that you are where you are and you're looking in Bethlehem this is the spot where Jesus was born this is the spot where thousands of years of Christian history originated from this is the spot where thousands of years and billions of people have devoted their life to following this person who was born here so it's hard to comprehend and when you go to Nazareth and you go to Jerusalem so when I went back the second time with you and with the group it was uh, just brilliant to be able to take things in a little bit more slowly and digest them and after you left uh, I stayed on an extra week because we were filming a special for EWTN News in Depth the show that's on Friday nights on EWTN and we did a written piece as well for the National Catholic Register and it was about a very special hospital that is there in Bethlehem called the Holy Family Hospital now this is there in the same region in the same town where Jesus was born this hospital and what is beautiful about it is that Gracie it is a maternity hospital Mm -hmm. so it's delivering babies today in Bethlehem and I interviewed Michelle Bow who is the ambassador from the Order of Malta 
to Palestine because Bethlehem is in Palestine. And the, the hospital is run by the Order of Malta. It was started in 1895 by the Daughters of Charity, but in recent years, the running of the hospital and the funding has been taken over by the Order of Malta, who do an incredible job. So our guide was Michelle Bow from the from the Order. She was telling me that every year they deliver around 4,600 babies. And as you mentioned, coming up this January, they expect their 100,000 baby to bounce out of that hospital. So <laughs> it was really cool to walk around the wards and to meet the mothers, see the babies. And one of the other special things about the hospital, and there are so many, is that it is uh, it specializes in neonatal care. So it has an incredible neonatal intensive care unit. And as I say at the beginning of the piece that I wrote for the National Catholic Register, that if you want to know how precious life is and how life can sometimes really hang in the balance, all you have to do is stand in a neonatal ward. And when you look in at the tiny, tiny babies in these incubator units and how fragile they look and how with each breath they take, their stomachs are lifting up and down and you just get an idea of the scale and perspective when you see all the tubes going into their nose and their mouth and uh, they're so small and so precious, these babies. And the hospital has become quite famous in Palestine because of the excellent level of care that it gives to the children. It has a massive success rate in terms of babies coming out of the neonatal intensive care unit as healthy babies with success stories. And then on the other hand, Gracie, the the, the sad reality of life, and this is something that I put in the article and we featured on television, it was in one of the incubator units, there was a little boy who was born with a rare syndrome, and don't ask me to remember the name of it, but it was a syndrome where many of the bones in his body were broken and they were not going to heal. And because of that, this poor little baby that was just a few days old was in intense pain and you could see it was struggling to breathe as it was lying there. And so I was speaking to the doctors and the nurses and they said this was one of the most tragic things about working in medicine is when you're, you have the cases in front of you and you know there's nothing you can do. So at that point, they were giving the baby morphine. Even when you hear that, giving a baby morphine, they were giving the baby morphine and trying to make the last, the first couple of days of the baby's life as comfortable as possible. And what I was struck by is above all the most advanced and modern medical equipment that was stacked beside the bed, there was a beautiful crucifix uh, hanging on the wall and the way Jesus was on the crucifix and his head kind of bowed to one side, it, it, it was as if Jesus was looking down at the baby in sadness. That's what it looked like when I was there. So, you know, there are moments of sadness, but there, there is this overwhelming joy and love that you feel in the hospital that made it such a special place for us to visit. Calm to set the stage for our listeners, I think it'd be it'd be useful to talk about what Bethlehem is like, where it is, because it's it's only 6 miles from the very modern advanced city of Jerusalem, but it's in the West Bank. It's an it's an area that's been controlled by by Israel for since 1967 or 68, I think, and it suffers under the the conditions of the West Bank, which some of some of which are self-imposed by poor management uh, within their, their the Palestinian territory, some of it which is due to the fact that they're they're segregated from the rest of, of Israel because of you know their terrorist tendencies of some of the people that, that live in the West Bank. It when you cross over from from, from prop Israel proper into the West Bank, 
you you cross through barbed wire and and you enter an area which is quite wretchedly poor. I've traveled a lot in the in the in Latin America and it's and it has a it, there's a third world appearance to it and a feel. It's it's dusty and 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 cementy and gray and and you can see that people struggle to have um, flourishing lives in 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 a difficult economic situation and also a difficult political and cultural situation where you have Arabs uh, Arab uh, Palestinians living side by side with Christian Palestinians having trouble finding work and 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 operating modern lives in, in an area which is restricted in so many ways. I, I just wanted to say that to set the stage for the miracle of this hospital <laughs> existing in a place like Bethlehem, a, a place that's so significant to, to to the whole world. I mean, what's significant to Christians because our master and Lord was born there and, and God intersected with humanity in that place, in that particular place and time in history. But significant for the whole world because Christianity changed the face of the world. Christian or not, you live. We all live in a in a in a Christian world, um, which is shaped by Christian ideals and values and and Christian history and the way Christianity has has shaped world events. You know, for two thousand years. So that's to set the stage and. And, and, and there is some, there is this huge significance that in Bethlehem, there's this hospital receiving pregnant women um, who are delivering babies that are in terrible danger because they're being born early. Uh, I think it's the only hospital, correct me, and maybe give me more details, that receives um, babies that are born uh, before their their due date, like in the, in, the, in the 34 weeks or 33 weeks or even earlier. So it's a neonatal care hospital and that's a very rare thing in this in this uh, poor region you're absolutely right gracie it is they are the specialists and they're the only ones there in palestine offering this kind of treatment and remember because of the political situation which you greatly outlined there it's not as if they can hop over to israel and get treatment in jerusalem uh, some people do have permits to go into israel for work and so on but uh, most of them don't and to set the backdrop yes the majority of people who come to this hospital looking for care they come from very poor backgrounds some of them are refugees internal refugees displaced people that live in refugee camps, uh, some of which we visited in the middle of Bethlehem. And they live in huts that are, you know, very basic, primitive kind of shack-like huts, uh, squalor together. It reminded me a bit of some of the slums that I saw in Buenos Aires when I was there or around uh, Cape Town in South Africa. So they come from very poor conditions. And then even uh, further on, you have the people who come from the desert land. Remember, there are vast desert land areas in Palestine, and they actually have a mobile clinic. So the hospital was realizing that one problem they were up against was that some people who were not around Bethlehem, the town itself, if they lived too far out in the desert, they couldn't come and avail of the services. So the way they got around this is a number of years ago, they uh, bought a van and they fitted it out with an ultrasound, different medical equipment to scan and treat expectant mothers. And twice a week, they take this van, they leave the Holy Family Hospital in Bethlehem, and they drive for hours out to the rural desert countryside and they visit some of these indigenous Bedouinian people who have been living there for uh, centuries uh, in the families in this desert land. Column, it was incredible to go with them. We saw them when we yes. were together there and they're, it's, they're shockingly primitive. <laughs> they live in, in tents um, in areas that you can yep. see from the, from the highway, uh, but they live Bedouin, uh, itinerant, tent dwelling lives. So how wonderful that the that this hospital also 
has a mobile uh, portion. You know, m many women end up delivering early because of inadequate prenatal care. So I can see that that's what they're doing. They're trying to prevent the women from having to avail themselves of the ICU, of the neonatal ICU services when their babies are born early. And remember, this is a culture that is, as you say, live a certain way. They have lived this way for many, many years and they do not integrate uh, that often with a land of technology, a modern society that we have maybe in the West or many people listening. But the incredible thing was to go out with the van and see it going to these communities, uh, most of them Muslim people. And this is another great thing about the hospital. It will care for anybody who comes to the mm -hmm. door, regardless of their race, creed, religion, anything. So when we went out and we saw all the ladies and the women, some of them quite young women, queuing to go into the back of the van, and most of them had all of their uh, their face covered, just showing their eyes. The men would accompany them, drop them off and wait around. And we were told by the men in these communities, under no circumstances could we point the camera towards their wives or um, their sisters, whatever the case was. We couldn't film them, we couldn't interview them. We were able here and there to get a, a number of shots when we got consent, but that was the kind of the, the rule the majority of the time. But it is amazing to see them getting this care where if they didn't get it from the Order of Malta and from the Holy Family Church, I'm not sure where else they would be able to get it from. Yeah, I think they would deliver as women have delivered uh, for centuries and centuries. Um, and, and, and with the, with the sad consequences of not having that, that kind of advanced care, because in, in our medical situation in the West and in, in the places like this Holy Family Hospital, women have tremendous success in, in bringing forth um, healthy babies. But this is not a historical, this, this is a historical anomaly when you, when you think about the, the history of, of obstetric care. And what struck me when you were talking about Bethlehem being a very poor region relative to everything around it is when you think about the history of Bethlehem, the house of bread, isn't it? It means our house of meat in translation. But Bethlehem, 2,000 years ago, when Jesus was born there, it too, just a couple of miles south of the city of Jerusalem, it was a poor area mm -hmm. with peasants and they were farmers and their main job was to supply Jerusalem and the temples with fresh products and meat and lambs for slaughter. So it's incredible. When I interviewed Michelle Bo, the ambassador, she said, here we are in Bethlehem. It was a poor area then. It is still a poor area then. Jesus was born in a manger among the straw and the animals. She said, we just want to guarantee that every baby born in Bethlehem today will have a chance and will have facilities and will be born in a different situation. That's a wonderful initiative of the Knights of Malta. How how long have they been funding this hospital and, and caring for it so, so tenderly? Now you've got me there. I'm not sure exactly <laughs> how many years, but it's the Order of Malta. They have been looking after for the last uh, number of years anyway, and they have helped uh, renovate certain parts of it. They have advanced the medical equipment. And what they've done is really hired brilliant people. They have, they told me, the manager, when I was talking to him that it's very tough to get a job there. Now, there are not that many medical jobs to be got in Palestine, but he said among the medical world in Palestine, that that hospital is the most sought after in terms of getting a job because everyone knows that they have such a high standard and level of care and expertise there. And certainly all the doctors and nurses we met were just, they were really, you could tell they were brilliant at what they did. And what was very sweet, Gracie, to see is the students, they bring in so many students, they 
they have a partnership with a college there and you have the corridors were full with young doctors and nurses walking around uh, again many of them wearing their hijabs most of their employees are Muslim and most of them are women as well but there was a very sweet moment and you see it in the TV report and it's in the written article where we were in one of the wards and this young girl was young woman was so proud of herself because she had just delivered her first baby and she was probably in her early 20s but she had an older more experienced midwife behind her and I said to her how was it she was holding the baby in her hands and she said it was a beautiful moment and it was lovely and life is always a magical moment she said <laughs> and then I asked the older how did it go was she good and she said of course we have no fears because I am behind her she is my student and I'm her teacher and it is wonderful and you can just tell like in most good hospitals, there is a, a level of expertise and um, a level of caring, but there is something about this place, whether it's the, the background of where people come from, maybe it's because of the land where it is and the sacredness of the Holy Land, or maybe it's all these things mixed together. There is just a beautiful, loving atmosphere in the air, and you feel that everywhere you go in the hospital. Well, then it's it's appropriately named the Holy Family Hospital. You know, you were you were going back to what you said about Bethlehem being a poor, conflicted land now or place now, and it was certainly poor and politically conflicted back then when Jesus was born. And yet, the Holy Family created this perfect, safe, peaceful place for our Lord to to come into the world to take his first breath as as a human being. And that's what the Holy Family Hospital is doing in Bethlehem, creating this peaceful island and oasis, it sounds to me, um, uh, just like the Holy Family did. It is, yeah, there's a beautiful, um, there still are um, some of the structures there, of course, from when the sisters were, had the started it and were in control. So in the middle, you have this kind of grotto or this area, and there's a beautiful peacefulness in it. And you can look at the windows all around and you see the staff, and then you see the mothers rushing by with their newborn babies and people going through with balloons and congratulations, flowers. It was a joy to be there for a few days and just to, and you know, we got to spend a few days there. It wasn't just in and out in an afternoon. So myself and the TV crew from EWTN, we really got to get a sense of what the hospital was about. And we met many of the staff and the patients as well. So it was really beautiful. Come spending time with you in the Holy Land. I, we got to talk a lot and, and about your your career and your path and how you got to where you're going. And I wanted to ask you to tell us, uh, me and your and the listeners, about how you how you came to this place in, in your career where it, it seems to me it, it, it's quite. It's, it's quite special that you get to travel around the world and view things, um, report on things, create, you know, uh, TV productions and, and, and write articles from a Catholic perspective, pieces and, and, and interviews that, that lift hearts, that, um, that make people understand the nobility with which uh, human beings can live and, and following the path of that, that God laid out for us. It's a very special place you're in, uh, I think, uh, career-wise and professionally. Tell our listeners how you got here and, and what it means to you to, to work in Catholic media. That's a big question. I thought you were going to <laughs> it's a big question, Gracie, and uh, I thought you were going to say when you mentioned uh, we got to spend some time together in the Holy Land, I thought you were going to follow that with, and I never want to see you again. But <laughs> it was... <laughs> 
No, we had we had very much fun when we weren't praying and going to mass. We were having a lot of fun too. We were. There was a lot of laughing at the back of the bus. I remember that, and uh, it was it was a lot of fun. But you know how how I got. It's a kind of a long story, and I don't want to bore you or the listeners with the long story. So I'll give you the short version of it. Is that I grew up in a faithful family in. Clare in Ennis, that's the, the west of Ireland. My mom and dad are Scottish, Tom and Noreen. And I have an uncle who's a priest. I have an aunt who's a nun, come from a large family. And I was just always comfortable being around clergy and being around religious. I was an altar server when I was younger. And I just always had a great affinity for the church. I, I felt at peace. I felt at home. I felt comfort in the Catholic church. And I then joined RTE, which is the public service broadcaster of Ireland. Spent a few years there on radio and in television. And then I moved to New York. I joined the BBC, working with them um, on a freelance basis doing lots of uh, radio stuff for the World Service. And I was always on the side going to countries and doing bits for EWTN as a freelancer. So I would do a show here, a report there. But as the more I traveled, it reaffirmed me and my faith and my belief that the Catholic Church is a brilliant institution because everywhere I would go, whether it was Angola in West Africa, whether it was South Korea, whether it was Argentina in Latin America, I would just you would see the church helping those who needed help the most. And I mean, I could elaborate on that so much and I could mention countries and stories, but everywhere I went, when it was people who were disabled, people who were poor, people who were on the margins, yes, there were other people and groups helping them there and doing very noble things. But I noticed this pattern, and this wasn't even for EWTN, this was for BBC and for RTE and other mainstream networks. I just saw again and again, brilliant priests and nuns and the church on the ground doing everything they could to help them and not doing it for the things that everyone chases in the world fame money glory doing it silently under the radar where nobody was hearing about it so i felt kind of a draw to start covering some of these stories and one of the first stories i did was about an irish priest in ecuador outside the city Guayaquil in ecuador and that was for irish television and it was just a simple story of this priest doing everything he could to help the poor people in the village of Guayaquil. And then I went to South Africa to do a story about an Irish nun who had been there for 70 years, 70 years helping the people around the city of Port Elizabeth in this poor township. And she was there all throughout apartheid when it was very difficult. And no one had heard of her. This was like Ireland's Mother Teresa, this woman. So I made a half hour TV show on her and then all of a sudden everybody in Ireland had heard of her. And then I would go, I did a piece about the 30th anniversary of the Chernobyl disaster. We, we did that in Belarus and Ukraine. I discovered there were Christian brothers helping the orphans. And I mean, I, I could go on and on and on. And I realized this is the church. This is what it is. You know, you hear certain stories in the newspapers about when the church makes mistakes and when, and when it does things terribly wrong, which it has and which it still does and which we have to own up to and hold people accountable for that. But you, you can't lose sight that that is the minority. That is a tiny percentage that has, you know, any percentage is, is always too much when it's stuff as horrific as abuse. But I, I was seeing, I think what a lot of people were not seeing is the vast majority of people in this church are doing not good work. They're doing incredible work. And I'm not trying to be um, do propaganda for the church here or anything. I just have to tell it as it is. When I travel around with the camera, the camera doesn't lie. So when we go with the TV crew in somewhere uh, like South Korea to a cotton yang, 
this massive facility that looks after people with special needs, the biggest special needs care provider in South Korea. And South Korea is a very advanced country. It's the Catholic Church that is there helping people. We just tell it as it is. And it is a great joy to be able to go around with the backing of VWTN, who put their money where their mouth is and says, we're going to go to all these places around the world. We were in South Sudan this year. We went to Dubai. We went to, um, you name it. I, we go everywhere and we show what the church is doing on the ground. And I don't think anyone else does it. So and it's a Colin, privilege to be. Don't you think it's it's not just important for, for Catholics to know how 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 beautifully uh, insistent the Catholic Church is in, in, in insinuating itself in all the darkest places that, that humanity lives in, and in our world, which is a very complicated and, and sometimes very ugly world. But it's also really good for the entire in the entire population, Christian or not Christian, believers or non-believers, to see that this kind of nobility of action is possible, that, that human beings can be that sacrificial and, and that uh, devoted to the good of the other. Uh, I think it's wonderful yeah. that you, when, when you highlight these stories, it, it's wonderful for everyone. You open doors uh, in people's minds uh, to what each of us is capable of. Well, I, you're very generous, uh, Gracie. I, I don't know if I do it. It's uh, <laughs> very much the team, us all working together, but it's the people who do it themselves. They're the ones who are inspiring people in their minds and their hearts when they see them on TV. And again, don't you know? Don't be mistaken. We covered the, the Munich report when it came out. We went to Canada to do a piece on the residential schools and what happened there on behalf of the church and the state. Uh, we, we cover the Vatican financial scandals as well. So we, we cover all that too. But the vast majority of the stuff that I get to witness around the world, I mean, if I showed it to anybody, I would say, why would, it doesn't make sense. Why would you not want to be part of this club, let's say? You know, even for people who are non-believers, how can you not agree that the Catholic Church overall is an immense force for good in the world? As I often say to people, if the Catholic Church disappeared tomorrow for the believers, non-believers, wherever you may lie on the fence, the world would be a lot worse off if the Catholic Church disappeared. A lot of people would go hungry, they would go without care, they would go without education, and that is just the reality, that is fact. And in Holy Family Hospital and in Bethlehem, the, the babies would not be welcomed uh, with the care and tenderness and, and high, uh, high level of patient care that they are. So thank you, Colm, for telling us about um, the, these beautiful things that are happening in Bethlehem today, as they happened 2,000 years ago, babies coming into the world and, and making the world a better place. Where can our watch our watch your TV report and, and read your piece on, on, this, on this beautiful hospital? The TV report has already aired on EWTN News In Depth, but you can watch it back on the EWTN YouTube channel. If you type in Bethlehem EWTN, you'll find it there. And there's a piece in the National Catholic Register about it. And actually, you know what? That was a very long answer. When you said, how did you get this job and travel around the world? The reality is, and the honest truth, uh, Gracie, is that EWTN were very stuck. Nobody else was available and I got the call. That's why. <laughs> Well, that must be why I'm on the radio, too. <laughs> on EWTN Radio. It's great fun. Listen, thank you so much, Gracie, and it's a joy and a pleasure to speak to you, as always. Well, many blessings to you and your family on, on, the, on this, this last two days of Advent and for the Christmas season, Calm.
Welcome back to the show. This is Conversations with Consequences, and I'm your hostess, Dr. Gracie Christie. And now I'm welcoming to the show someone that you are very familiar with because uh, you hear his uh, voice giving us our wonderful weekly homily uh, that he so kindly and generously provides for us uh, at, at the end of every single one of our shows. And this is Father Roger Landry. Welcome, Father. Great to be with you, Gracie. Happy fourth week of Advent, and uh, happy Advent to all our listeners. It's amazing to me that um, the Advent season has passed so quickly. I had I had a, a, a loss at the beginning of Advent. My father, unfortunately, passed away, as I've spoken about it on the show before, because it happened already two or three weeks ago. But still, it's Advent. Uh, something wonderful is on its way. It's uh, our Lord is coming, and and I do, and I do want to focus on on that amazing um, connection that God provides for us through His Son and and through Christmas. So. I thought, and, that. I, and I think I, I think Gracie, the three meanings of Advent are even more significant when someone experiences a loss, as you were talking with Dr. Popchak last week. Mm-hmm. Uh, the the main purpose of Advent is to prepare for Christ's coming, and so when we entrust one of our loved ones over to the Lord, it gives us an even greater longing for that definitive uh, reunion, family reunion in God the Father's house. Uh, Every time we go to Bethlehem uh, and we remember that, we remember why Christ came into the world. He was born so that man might no longer die, as we sing in one of our great Christmas hymns. And so we take superb solace from that. And then the third purpose of Advent is meeting Christ in the present. And so we know that we're never abandoned. We don't have to experience loss alone that Christ himself comes to mourn with us, just like he mourned with his friend, and to try to fill some of those holes of love that uh, have been filled so well by those who have entrusted back to God. So I, I, I pray for you, Gracie, this Advent, for all those who, are, who have similarly experienced deep loss in their life, that they might find in the threefold meaning of Advent a little something that prepares them for the joy, not just of God with us, in Bethlehem and on the altar, but God who wants to be with us and with our loved ones forever. Father, I want to get back to the idea that that we encounter uh, the coming of of God in in Advent and Christmas, but that we also encounter Him Eucharistically in much the same way. And I I want to deepen uh, discussion with you on that. But when you were talking about how God how God comes to us and and saves us from death, that's been very present in my mind with uh, with all my with all our troubles in our family with with my father passing away, because the reality the reality of death is such an awful reality. Uh, and it's mm-hmm. and it's pervasive. It's ever present. It it I think it colors so much of our understanding of the world and of ourselves and of our relationships with each other. That it's it. I've been um, I've I've just been overwhelmed with the thought that God wanted to partake of our humanity, not just through in birth, which is wow, that's tremendous that He would want to participate in that kind of that kind of um, event, that's so human and so so material, but also in death, which is in in a way so awful and i think god you know partakes from beginning to end in in our humanity so what tell me what you think about that father i think that that's an insight that comes from above gracie like when we look back to the beginning of sacred scripture we see that god never intended death but once we through our first parents sin um lost the immortality that god wanted from the beginning he didn't leave us there He took on our nature, including the fact that we die, in order to redeem even suffering and death. He wanted to redeem every part of human life and turn even our death into an opportunity of redemption. 
And so the thing as we live Advent well, you know, especially that first focus on Advent, sometimes we can focus so much on Bethlehem and so much on meeting Christ in the present that we can forget that the main point, the top sentence of Advent is to prepare for Christ when he comes again at the end of our life. And we don't have to prepare as if it's something dreadful. Yes, death is painful and ugly and never intended by God. But we as Christians know what's on the opposite side of death. And so even when Christians, for example, have had to die the way Jesus died by being subjected to incredible suffering at the end of their life, they knew that as soon as they had breathed their last here on earth, that there would be a new source of oxygen that come would come on in, that they would be with God forever. And that's what made the martyrs courageous and even sing at the end of their life. That's what made these beautiful virgin martyrs capable of being um, united to the Lord because they were always seeking him in every choice of their life. And that's what I think inspires us as Christians as we say so often, thy kingdom come, as we talk in the mass about the blessed hope in the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's what Advent stokes our desire for, for the eternal communion with the Lord that brings good even out of the terrible reality of death. That's what led St. Paul, for example, almost to mock death in his first letter to the Corinthians, where he said, oh, death, where is your sting? Um because Christ has come to take away the venom of death by the antidote of eternal life. And for that, we are so grateful. We Christians live for that great, great hope that Jesus is going to come and we're going to be embraced by him forever and forever and forever. And our loved ones who live and die in him too. So that's that's what marks this season. That's what we get ready for. And as we go to Bethlehem together at Christmas, that's a, or meet Jesus on the altar. Those are, in a sense, down payments on the guarantee Jesus given us that he's coming back and wants to embrace us forever with love. Without that hope that, that Pope Benedict talks about, the real Christian hope of, of an afterlife and of joy with God, all the, all the smaller hopes, the material hopes, are vain. Don't we hope in vain? Because in the end, if, if there's no life after death um, and a joyful life with God at that, then all our little hopes are they're meant to die in, in tragedy. They're meant to end. There's, no, there's nothing we can hope for on earth that, that has lasting, any lasting value or is able to last. That's a true Advent perspective. That's absolutely right everything would be vain. Ecclesiastes would have the final word. But, and here's the big but, <laughs> our, our, our Christian life is geared toward this great hope of the Lord. And so the smaller hopes, even though they might be ultimately vain, can anesthetize the soul. It can sort of fill us with what I call the cotton candy of life, whereas God wants to give us an eternal banquet. And so we do have to be on the lookout sometimes for placing all our hopes in these worldly good hopes, to have a good job, to have a good house, to have a good family. All of these other penultimate hopes can sometimes um, uh, deaden our desire for that great hope of all for God and his reunion of all of those who live and die with him. Uh, are, you know, in, in that place that Jesus has gone to prepare for us. And so Advent is that season in which we start thinking more eschatologically, thinking toward those um, end times and that eternal embrace. And then Christmas is an opportunity to say that if 
God did so much in order to become a little baby in our arms. Would he not give us everything else besides? And so that's what buttresses our hope in that great hope. The church also presents to us during Advent the the figures of the the great prophets, uh, of course, starting with St. John the Baptist, um, but also other figures that keeps representing them to us, right? Like Samson, the Samson story, I think was yesterday or sometime this week, uh, in one of the daily masses. It, Why it does was the church, yesterday. It was yesterday. Why does the church um, put so much an, uh, of an emphasis during Advent on, on, prep, on this kind of preparatory work by the prophets? I think to help us to enter in to the experience of the Jews over centuries, longing for the Messiah. That's why, for example, we have Isaiah every day Mm -hmm. uh, at daily Mass. Isaiah is the great Advent prophet who sort of passes the baton to John the Baptist, who gets us ready with conversion. But all the prophets are part of this long line in which they were waiting for that long-awaited one. And the more we focus on what the true prophecies were— we can be disabused of our false notions of what Jesus should do or should have done when he came. You know, the big problem for the Jews was that many were looking for a political Messiah, someone who would come and boot out the Romans and reestablish an earthly reign of David. That was not part of the prophecies. You know, even Isaiah talks about a suffering servant. The Book of Wisdom talks about besetting the just one. You know, we've got these archetypes with Abel, the just one, being murdered. We've got Abraham's son Isaac taking the wood for the sacrifice up to the very mountain where Jesus himself would be crucified. We've got this whole line saying what the Messiah would be and what he would save us from. But there was this temptation to domesticate and reduce uh, the Messiah's mission to exactly what their this-worldly aspirations were. And so when we enter into these prophecies throughout this season, we see what the real Messiah was. You probably remember a week ago at the Sunday Mass, John the Baptist sent his disciples Mm -hmm. to Jesus saying, are you the one who was to come or should we wait for another? Now, there's great controversy about what that means. Some want to say that John the Baptist was himself having doubts. I don't think he was. I think his disciples were clinging to him, and he wanted to send them to Jesus. And when what did Jesus say? I mean, Jesus said, go and tell John what you see and hear. And then he described all the miracles he was doing, which was like box checking of everything (laughs) Isaiah the prophet had said the Messiah would do when he came. And so sometimes, you know, like John the Baptist's disciples, we can say, well, why hadn't Jesus liberated John from prison? Why didn't he kick out Herod? Why didn't he kick out the Romans? Well, that wasn't the purpose why he came. Mm-hmm. And he's come to be with us, in a sense, to accompany us always through the ups and downs of life, bringing good out of the good, bringing good even out of the evil, and redeeming every aspect of human life. And that's the Messiah that the prophets help us to await. He's already come that first time. He will come again. And that's when justice and truth will meet definitively. And if Jesus had come, if the Messiah had come to solve our worldly problems, right, the oppression and the injustice and all the terrible ways that people suffer from from the actions of others, um, if he had come to solve that, then we would have abandoned the need for that that real hope, right, for supernatural hope. We would be so satisfied with our present conditions that we wouldn't be looking for our final happiness. True. Uh, Jesus came ultimately to change us, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, to change human beings in the hope that really living in his kingdom 
we would no longer have those types of things that eventually, for example, led the Jews to have their temple destroyed um, because of the same sort of vices that had led to the rejection of Jesus. Some of the Jewish leaders, likewise, were still at it when the Romans were coming on in and stubbornly they resisted. Jesus has come to change us so that we will become peacemakers with him, truth seekers and truth livers with him. People really, having received his love, love others by the same standard with which we have been loved. If we've really received the gospel at the depth at which Jesus has given it to us, the world would be markedly different. But he didn't come as a political messiah. He came as a messiah to change us and to help us, even in this world, begin to bring the values of his kingdom. So we shouldn't look as our ultimate goal, this world and a kingdom of God on earth. We should be looking eschatologically. But at the same time, when we look toward heaven and toward the definitive fulfillment, it doesn't mean we turn our back on this worldly causes. It inspires us, as the Second Vatican Council taught us, to get even more involved by trying to bring Christ and his love into what divides and hurts and ultimately kills people today. That's very beautiful, Father. And and it's so um, it's so, such a wonderful way to place it, right? To place the the reality of what God offers us in in His coming and in, and in the, in the coming to come. <laughs> and Father, can you connect for us now, um, Advent to the the Eucharist and our and the way that we should be focusing on the Eucharistic, the National Eucharistic Revival that the bishops are so keen on and that we should all be so so sure. passionate about. Sure, I'm honored to be one of the 56 National Eucharistic preachers for the U.S. bishops, and I've been writing a series of columns for the National Catholic Register on Christmas uh, for their Christmas edition. They're going to run as an editorial a column that I wrote on St. Francis de Sales and his connection of Christmas to the Holy Eucharist. St. Francis de Sales' 400th anniversary of his birth into eternal life after the long advent of his life on earth is going to happen next week on December 28th. And so I've been reading a lot of St. Francis de Sales, and what was interesting in his Christmas homilies is he connected the birth of Jesus to the manna first that God rained down for the Jews in the desert, and how Christ himself identified himself as the true manna come down from heaven, and then said we have to eat him and drink his blood. That's a tremendous connection that St. Francis de Sales makes in connecting Jesus' incarnation and birth to the manna that God wanted us to consume every day. St. Francis said that prior to giving the manna, God had told the Jews through Moses, in the morning you shall see his glory. And he links that to the Christmas vigil. He lifts, links it to what was told to the Bethlehem shepherds in their cave at night, saying that God wanted to give us an even greater gift than what God was giving to the Jews in the desert every day. And Christ became that extraordinary gift. And it's not by coincidence that he was born in a place called Bethlehem, which is house of bread ah, in yes. Hebrew, and that he was placed in an ancient animal trough uh, it, you know, it wasn't a, a carpented crib by St. Joseph. Mm -hmm. It was an ancient animal dish to symbolize how this Messiah born for us has ultimately come, not just to teach us the way to follow, not just to die to take a, a, us away from our sins on Calvary, not just to rise gloriously on the third day, but ultimately to become our food so that from the inside, we would be able to experience what Mary herself experienced before Christ was born. And then imitating Mary's mystery, letting Christ grow within us in such a way that we have to share him with others, just like Mary shared him in utero with her cousin Elizabeth. And just like Mary would have shared him with so many others, including 
the shepherd and magi as we'll be celebrating this Sunday. So Jesus comes to transform us um, with his presence and and then to transform us from the inside out in the Eucharist. Go ahead, Father. Yeah, that ultimately we become the Bethlehem, that ultimately we become the manger, that we become a monstrance, we become a tabernacle. That is such an incredible, mind-blowing reality. You know, throughout Advent, we hear Isaiah's prophecy that a virgin will conceive and bear a son, and you are to name him Emmanuel, for, for God will be with us. But we, kind of like Mary, become a sign where that Emmanuel comes and dwells within us. And that should be the most consequential thing that ever happens to a human being on earth. And it's as close as the closest church. That is the ongoing reality of what we mark on Christmas Day. Well, thank you so much, Father Landry, for sharing these spiritual, this, these spiritual, um, tremendously important facts with us to to bring with us to our contemplation of of our home mangers, <laughs> and and to bring to us to Christmas Mass. Thank you, Father. It's, it's 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 an honor to do it. And the greatest thing of all, Gracie, is it's not just a story; it's the reality, and that reality is ours to embrace here and forever. So, God bless you. Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas to all our listeners. And now, Father Roger Landry offers us, as is customary, a short and inspiring homily to prepare us for this Sunday's Gospel. Merry Christmas. This is Father Roger Landry, and it's a joy to have a chance to ponder with you the consequential conversation God wants to have with us as we celebrate the birth of the Lord. There are four different Masses at Christmas, with four totally different sets of readings. The Vigil Mass, in which we hear again the Gospel we pondered last week of the angel's appearance to St. Joseph. The Master in the Night in which, in the Gospel, we examine the angel, what the angel said to the shepherds, keeping watch over their flocks at night. The Mass at dawn, the Gospel of which centers on the shepherds' encounter with Jesus, Mary, and Joseph in Bethlehem. And the Mass during the day, in which we meditate on the beginning of St. John's Gospel, in the theological reality of the Word of God's becoming flesh and dwelling among us. Each of these Gospels, and the readings that complement them, merits a full treatment, but what I'd like to do is focus on St. Luke's account of the shepherds with the angels and then with Mary and Joseph in order to ponder four lessons we can learn from them about what God expects of us as God's eternal word enters into a consequential conversation with us as he is born of Mary in Bethlehem. The first lesson is about vigilance. Shepherds were on watch. They were able to hear the message proclaimed by the angels because they were awake this alertness points to an interior readiness to receive God's word through the angel. Their hearts were open, waiting for God and longing for God. They were in a state, we could say, of Advent. They were willing to stretch their imaginations to recognize that God's highest glory could be found wrapped in swaddling clothes lying in a manger, and that such lowliness could be in turn lifted to divine heights. The first Sunday of Advent each year features a gospel passage that reminds us that we need to awaken and remain alert for the Lord is coming like a thief in the night. The shepherds are models of what it means to be awake and alert for the Lord's arrival. Like the shepherds, we're called to be vigilant, awake, and alert. One great way to determine whether we're really alert and awake to God, whether we're able to stretch our imaginations to embrace Christ in the real, real world, is whether we're able to give up some of our sleep to come to be with him like happens with the beautiful tradition of Christmas Midnight Mass, which is a bulwark against the propensity to fit the celebration of Christmas and the worship of God into our crowded life. But an annual reminder that we're called to make our lives revolve around the mysteries of faith, and that those mysterious realities are worth changing sleep patterns and inconveniencing ourselves. 
The truth is that if we're not away to the presence of God with us, to his word announced through his messengers, then we're essentially living in a dream world that will make us often miss the promptings of God. The shepherds show us what should be occurring in us spiritually throughout the year, staying awake to God's promptings, to his voice, with interior longing, so that when God speaks and calls, we're listening and ready. The second lesson the shepherds teach us is how to respond to God's promptings. St. Luke tells us that they made haste to go to Bethlehem. This expression calls to mind what we know about the Blessed Virgin Mary, who as soon as the angel told her that her elderly cousin Elizabeth was pregnant in old age, went with haste to care for her. The shepherds, like Mary, didn't wait to respond to God when they found open time in their calendars. They responded right away. And like with Mary, who didn't need to be told or even suggested to go help her cousin, neither did the shepherds need to be cajoled. The angels told them that in Bethlehem a Savior was born for them, who was Christ and Lord. And they said to themselves, as soon as the angels had departed, let us go then to Bethlehem to see this thing that has taken place, that the Lord has made known to us. They considered what God had revealed to them so important that they had to go immediately. There's a very valuable lesson for this in all, to, for all of us. When we recognize the essential truth, for example, that Jesus is truly present for us in the altar, do we make him a priority and rush to be with him? How many of us make haste where the things of God are concerned? Pope Emeritus Benedict said in a Christmas Midnight Mass homily a few years back, it's probably not very often that we make haste for the things of God. God doesn't feature among the things that require haste. The things of God can wait, we think and say, and yet... He's the most important thing, ultimately the one truly important thing. Most of us don't give the things of God priority. We postpone prayer, studying his word, learning our faith, doing works of charity, squeezing them in only if we have time left over after we do all the other things in our agenda. The shepherd's example teaches us the freedom that comes from faith, the freedom that helps us to put everything else in second place to God so that we may always respond promptly to his inspirations. The Israelites had waited for centuries for the coming of the Messiah, but when he came, the vast majority of them were not alert or prepared to change their priorities to be with him who had taken on our nature to be with us. The innkeepers had no room for him. The scholars of law around Herod had no room. He came to his own, St. John will tell us, at Christmas Mass during the day, and his own people didn't accept him. But those who did, he said, he gave power to become children of God. The shepherds accepted this message, made God their priority, went without delay to be with God, and received this power. Mary and Joseph and the wise men also responded in the same, totally adjusting their lives to the reality of God's coming into the world. They all show us that it's possible, according to our circumstances, to do likewise. The third lesson the shepherds teach us is that in order to encounter the Lord as he wants, we have to move, we have to change. By God's designs, the Holy Family could have been directed to the cave where the shepherds were dwelling so that the shepherds would not have had to have moved at all. But even though the eternal God made man traveled the great distance from heaven to earth to be with them, he intentionally was born a short distance away so that the shepherds likewise would have to get up and move. They needed to rise and go to Jesus. They needed to make a sacrifice. They needed to dare to go beyond their limits. They needed to travel in the middle of the night at the words and songs of angels. The lesson is that we too need to get up from where we are and go to Bethlehem. 
At no point in his public life did Jesus ever say, stay where you are. He always told us, come follow me. Our faith is dynamic. We need to be willing to change. We need to be willing to journey. We need to be willing to go to the Lord where he is rather than try to get him to accommodate himself to our own preferences. And this requires conversion in faith. But these are gifts that God wants to give us at Christmas, if only we embrace them. The final lesson we learn from the shepherds is that if we really live Christmas well, if we're vigilant, if we leave where we are and go without delay to the Lord where he is to be found, then we will be changed by him forever. In the shepherds' case, St. Luke tells us that after having adored Jesus, they returned glorifying and praising God for all that they had heard and seen. They became evangelizers, taking the good news of great joy that the angels had announced to them out to others. They became essentially like new angels, singing glory to God in the highest and peace on earth to all those on whom God's favor rests. This is what happens when we really encounter Christ at the depth he wishes. During this first year of the three-year Eucharistic revival that the church in the U.S. is living, I'd encourage you to act on these lessons that God teaches us through the shepherds to the privilege we have of adoring the same Lord Jesus in the monstrance that the shepherds, magi, angels, animals, and Mary and Joseph adored in the manger, and to the even greater privilege we have of receiving him within at Mass each day. The greatest thing that ever happened to the shepherds happened because they didn't go back to bed when the angels appeared, but went with haste to Bethlehem. Likewise, the greatest blessings we'll receive will come when we truly make God with us, the Word made flesh who dwells among us, our priority, and go to Him and seek to live with Him full time, as did Mary and Joseph. So we prepare soon to adore in the altar, the same Christ whom the shepherds adored in swaddling clothes in the manger. We ask the Lord, born for us, to work in us the same miracle of faith and love he worked in the shepherds, so that we may always be alert to how God with us is still and always with us, to convert from our present habits and go to him without delay, and then having been transformed by this encounter, become angels from whom others will be able to hear from on high. The Lord Jesus will truly become present on our altar just like he was in Mary's arms, and he will come to our parish church just like he came to Bethlehem out of saving love. So let us get up like the shepherds and go to adore him. Let us never cease adoring him, so that one day with Joseph, Mary, and all the saints, we may have the privilege to worship him forever in the eternal Bethlehem. Merry Christmas. Thank you, Father Landry. To hear more from Father Landry, check out his website at catholicpreaching.com, and you can also catch his writings at EWTN's own National Catholic Register. A big thank you to all our listeners for joining us. I hope that this show was helpful. I hope that it gave you more peace and more hope and more joy, and you go with our prayers. 